Hi, I'm Reverend Grant Mansfield. And I'm Rabbi Andy Warmflash. And this This is Common Grounds. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. We're so happy to be able to share this podcast with you, to do it live. And just to let you know the format, we're going to talk for about 25 minutes, maybe. Um, and then we will open it up for your questions and comments if you'd like to make them. We have uh, a, a microphone in the aisle and you can come up to it when the time comes if you'd like to to say something. We wanna end things around 10 of eight uh, and there are refreshments outside. We'll be able to enjoy those and talk a little bit informally. And for those who are going, there's Minion at eight o'clock in the the chapel. Uh, So again, welcome. there was, I think it was 2014, in the New York, uh, in the Atlantic magazine, an article by Telhanasi uh, Coast, who wrote about the case for reparations. And that got a great deal of attention uh, and really opened the conversation in many ways and in many circles around the country. Uh, We're here really to talk about the whole question of uh, reparations and to see it through the lens of faith, both Judaism and Christianity. Uh, But before before we do, Grant, maybe you want to say something about sort of where we are in this actual process of of reparations. Yeah, Um, and I think that looks different. Um, depending on where you are in different parts of the country and where our religious communities are. But I think overall what we can say as as a nation here in the United States that this has been, we're now at a point where this is being raised as a serious conversation. Um, And it it very much divides people in this. Um, I think some of the arguments that go um, against it are, you know, well, If um, I wasn't alive back then, why would I pay for this? So it it comes from an individual place. Um, But I I think suffice it to say that when we're talking about in a secular space, there's a particular nuance to it the same way that is a religious space. And so I think for me tonight, I'm going to focus on what um, our, what I understand the faith tradition of Christianity um, says about this. And what I will say in that, in relationship to the Episcopal Church, this is something that we've been doing a lot of work on for a very long time. Um, it's something that's very close and um, ho- hits home for us because as, um, as a member of the Episcopal Church, we were a part of the establishment of colonial America, which means from the very beginning when the slave trade began here in the colonies, we had our hands in those waters. And so we have a deep connection and and a deep responsibility to to write and work on this. And there's been a lot of developments on that within the Episcopal Church um, in different ways of how we address reparations. For us, the question is less, do we? And it's more of 
how are they? And so I just want to give a few examples. So um, the Diocese of New York uh, in 2006 put together a reparations commission to explore the history of um, the diocese, the diocese's um, connection to the slave trade and the economic ramifications of it. You go into New York and see these beautiful church buildings, a lot of it built with money that was brought forth from the slave trade. Um, so the Diocese of New York started doing that work and um, has pledged 1.1 million towards doing educational work on that. Um, they're not the only diocese. The Diocese of Maryland in 2020 um, established a reparations fund for $1 million. The Diocese of Texas in 2020 uh, set a fund for $13 million. And the Diocese of Minnesota um, just launched their own Truth and Reparations Initiative. The Diocese of Virginia, where I am from, just in 2021 um, created a $10 million fund um, for reparations. And the seminary that formed me that I went to school in, Virginia Theological Seminary, in 2019 set aside an endowment um, of 1.7 million. And in each of those amounts, each of those endowments do different things. Some of it is focused on education. Some of it is focused on lifting up leadership within black and brown communities and supporting historically black congregations, so on and so forth. But some of them go into direct reparations to descendants. So for instance, the 1.7 million at Virginia Theological Seminary, they have been able to do a lot of uh, historical research in tracing to direct descendants of the enslaved people who were um, rented out to the seminary to build the campus or um, able to trace direct descendants that the seminary of enslaved people that the seminary owned or um, folks who worked for the seminary post um, enslavement but during the Jim Crow era. And they actually give out direct reparations funds to families. Um, most of these other um, reparation funds don't do that, they uh, tackle it in different ways. And I think maybe that's the nuance that I'm intrigued to learn a little bit more about when we go into that is. Yeah, I, I, first of all, I think it's remarkable and impressive that the church has sort of owned this and is putting that money into that ownership. Um, I, I think that um, to speak about reparations in general from a religious point of view, we really have to think about not just the victims, but what the teachings of our traditions have to say about this subject. And, and uh, I will say in contrast to what you're saying about the Episcopal Church, I don't know of any Jewish organization, and we're very decentralized, right? We talked about yeah. that in our last conversation, that has really made a serious move towards financing anything that looks like reparations. But I do want to make a case for it without talking about how it would be done, right. um, which is complicated and difficult. Um, and I want to make a case for it from the Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. um, so I would start with a, a simple um, statement in the book of Deuteronomy, which I mm -hmm. probably well know. Justice, justice, you should pursue. It's very emphatic justice, justice. And the idea that is we don't just sit around and say things are not just, what can we do? But we should be actively 
pursuing justice. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, we have examples within the Jewish tradition that look like reparations. Perhaps most notably, the fact that when we were slaves in Egypt, something that we constantly remind ourselves of, and in which the Torah emphasizes probably more than almost anything, remember that you were slaves. Mm -hmm. um, when we left, we took a great deal from the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. right? They gave us gifts, the sort of uh, euphemistic, I'm not quite sure how that happened. But we came away with, with a, a lot of the wealth of Egypt, according to the Bible. Um, and I think that you have to see that in the context of a very striking biblical commandment, and that is not to hate the Egyptians. Mm. Don't hate the Egyptians because you were strangers in their land. And I'm wondering that there, I think that there may be a connection, right? In other words, when you feel, despite the fact that you've been slaves for 400 years, when you feel that it's acknowledged and in fact you receive some kind of compensation, obviously not enough, right? nowhere near enough, considering all the lives and the people who died and everything else, but there is, it somehow is an aid towards reconciliation. Mm -hmm. um, so I see those things as joined. I'm struck by the fact there, there's a law in the Torah that if you have a slave, you, uh, they can only serve you for six years. We talked about this when we talked about slavery. Yeah. And in the seventh year, they go free. And in Deuteronomy, they make, they emphasize the fact that when they go free, you have to give them the wherewithal to live um, independent lives. Mm. Right. That other because otherwise you're going to perpetuate this cycle where people will become impoverished, they'll sell themselves into slavery, they'll be freed, and so on and so forth. So you have to break with that. And you know, the question is whether we as a country really did that. Mm. Not, after, not only after the Civil War, but but in many ways. And one of the things that um Hosts points out in his his article in the Atlantic is that we have generations and generations of redlining and, right. and in Chicago he, he shows how you know black businesses are destroyed and you know so the freeways can be built and and all of this stuff and the question is did this community ever really have the wherewithal to uh, to establish itself with yeah. you know and I, one could argue right yeah no so it, i'm glad that you raised the 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 connection right to the the understanding of the nation of israel to in that relationship with egypt right i think that's a strong example of where we see in scripture where there there is this support for for reparations and and creating reconciliation there i'm i'm also struck by a couple other examples um that are in the New Testament that are unique to Christianity, but one that I want to point to that I think is important is in the Hebrew scriptures, and um, we hear about it in the, the prophet Ezra, and it it's talking about, um, you know, uh, when uh, Babylon takes over and conquers the, the nation of Israel and removes them from their land, and then you have two or three generations that go um, through before um, Darius, I believe is the name of the right. emperor, yeah, who, or the king, who comes in and returns the Jewish people to their land and actually imposes a tax um, 
and uses funds from the royal treasury to rebuild the temple. And I think that's a striking thing that's an important thing to raise up in the conversation in the United States, because that speaks to, it's not necessarily were you an individual who enslaved someone, did you inherently inflict this harm? But we understand that there's this structural inequality that comes from that. Mm -hmm. and, and how do we as a greater society repent of a wrong? Not saying that the, the people who are paying whatever this tax was are, are evil people who caused this harm. They weren't alive at the time, but that doesn't erase the responsibility we have to, to that. Yeah, you know, it's, I'm struck by what you're saying because we have a modern example. Mm. Right, which is the reparations that were paid to the Jewish community by the German government after the Second World War. Um, and what's interesting is that it continues to be paid by people who were not alive at that point. And, and you might say, you know, this wasn't, they didn't do it. Right. Right. Um, but it becomes, it became a almost a sense of national pride that, no, this is something that was perpetrated by our country, by our nation. And therefore, though we weren't around, we have a responsibility to it. And the other thing I would say about that comparison is that it did a tremendous amount of good. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean just for individual survivors of the Holocaust who were able to rebuild their lives, but you know, a lot of money went to the state of Israel yeah. uh, just in the years that it was getting started, right? Because Israel was founded in 48 after the war and a great deal of German money went to Israel and really helped Israel to establish itself economically, Yeah. right? So, so there is a process, um, I think, I don't know if it's an exact model, right? I, I'm very cautious right. about that, but it's an interesting fact that somehow should be a part of this discussion. I agree. And, and I think that's an important thing of, I don't think there is one particular way that we can embody reparations and, and move forward in it. I think that that's where a lot of the debate ought to be focused on of what does that look like for individual communities and in individual ways? And then what does that look like in these structural ways? And I think when we're talking about reparations, sometimes it can fall into this conversation space of right, that individual piece, but we, we have to look at it as a structural system. It was a structural system that embodied it in place. It was nations and empires that created this system. And so it takes a, a look at that on the macro level in terms of how we even begin to address it. And at the same time, the role of individual communities into that. So like at the very beginning of this, I named what different dioceses are doing or seminaries, which I, I would say they're, they're big, big players on this screen. But there's this beautiful example of this smaller Episcopal church that's in the Diocese of Maryland. It's um, Memorial Episcopal Church. You can go back and uh, look it up. But in what year did they start it? It was in 2018, they started doing research into their parish's history. And what they discovered um, and have you know, unearthed and raised up is that their congregation was, was built by enslaved labor. And um, in effect, when uh, slavery was ended, they made sure to build a church down the road for all the black people to go to. 
And so what they have done since they under, uncovered this is they've been on this long journey as a community, understanding that they can't make these wider impacts, but in our local community, how can we use our energies and our time and our resources to, to, to address that in different ways. And so they're doing it through education. They're doing it by supporting nonprofits and local um, groups in at-risk communities. Like you were talking about earlier in terms of how, how we lift up people so they're able to live and function in, in, mm -hmm. in society well. They're doing that in this beautiful way. And it's not necessarily focused all on the money. It's about the intention of how we come into relationship. You know, but a, a lot of what you've been talking about in terms of the Episcopal Church really comes out of this sense of you know, we as an institution enslaved people and benefited from it. And I'm just wondering theologically, setting mm -hmm. aside the actual history, right? How you see Christianity, you know, as a kind of Response mm. to this whole question: Are there, are there things in the New Testament that sort of? Oh yeah, to? definitely so. Well, I, I think everything you've raised in in the Hebrew Scriptures, right? We share in that, so we have that. But the two examples that come up for me, um, and and one of them comes out of the Gospels. It's in the Gospel of Luke. There's a story about a tax collector named Zacchaeus, um, and the kids love this story because it's a short man. And it's a story of Jesus comes. Um, to visit and he can't see over the crowds and no one likes him because he's taking everyone's money. So he climbs up this palm tree and Jesus points to him and says, I'm going to dine at your house. So like the kids love it because, you know, it, it represents them in some ways. But when we get into the dinner scene where Jesus and his disciples are having a meal with Zacchaeus and they are reflecting on how Zacchaeus has been essentially robbing um, the community in which he served, right, you know, collecting the tax for the Roman Empire and then keeping a little extra for himself. And throughout the conversation, um, he, Jesus and he, you know, that there's this repentance that Zacchaeus does. And part of the repentance, uh, the response to that, it comes out of the grace of God of saying, you are not the sum of your actions in this space. You can make changes. You're not stuck where you're at. And and what Jesus does is he prompts Zacchaeus of, you know, in response to God's love and response to God's grace for you and freeing you, then go and return back to people what you have taken to go and give back. And so even in, in this space, I look at them saying, okay, if there's a wrong that's been done, then we do have responsibility as Christians to, to help bring about some sort of healing and reconciling that. And then the second piece, it comes in the book of Acts, which is like the second, it's part two of the gospel of Luke. And there's, it's a very short scene, but, or a short couple of verses, but it talks about the beginnings of the early church and how we interacted with one another. And it talks about how those who came to be a part of the church um, sold all that they had and everything that um, the members of the church had was held in common so that there was none without need among them. And while that in scripture is really pointing to, you know, the model of the early church, I think it's also a good model when we look at it from a theological space on how we address reparations as well. Because if the intention from the very beginning of the church is that our primary role as the people of God is to ensure that all who have need have that need met, then I think we are failing is that as, as a nation and as communities, when we look at the, the reality of that here in the United States, when we look at 
how it's African-American households that have 33% less wealth than, I think I'm quoting that right, but there's a significant gap between white households and African-American households in terms of generational wealth. When we look at the, um, the educational um, inequalities and the different school systems and the redlining, the very practical things, but as a Christian, I look at that and say, okay, we're called to love all, we're called to, to offer grace and to reconcile and to ensure that all people in our midst, their needs are met. And for me, I don't think those needs are being met. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, and that it brings me back, you know, from, from the lens through which I look at it, it again comes back to justice. Yeah. Right. It's, it's fundamentally an unjust situation. Um, and, and it's not an unjust situation that just kind of happened organically. Um, it had its causes. Um, and along the way, there were things that were done. Um, and where there's injustice, one has to find a way to, you know, to right things. Um, having said that, the real struggle, and not something that we really can talk about tonight, is even if we were to have a consensus um, as, a, as a country, um, what's how does one even do that right and and mm. you know my fear is that it's so easy to get involved in in that question and why should i be paying my money and you know all and uh, you know or i wasn't here or you know or whatever it is right that you sort of lose sight of the whole question right so mm -hmm. so for me What's, what's most important now is to build some consensus that this is something that needs to happen. Yeah. How it happens is a whole other question. And, and I, I think asking that question actually gets in the way. Mm. It, it really does. Because until you have some general sense that we have to do something, then various proposals as to what we should do immediately raise people's you know concerns and how could you say we would do that and, right, right. With, without building a firm base from which to consider right. the question which is i think that's why this is such an important conversation right to look at it through the lens of faith you know and, and i won't speak for the jewish community on this and i won't speak for faith communities outside of christianity but what I will say is that there are many people who identify themselves as Christians in the United States who would express an opposition to reparations of having some sort of reconciliation here. And I don't think that that is a position that Christians can hold when we look at our scripture and look at the teachings of our faith. I think there is sound scriptural basis for that, as I do believe it would also be in the Jewish community as well. And so I think that's probably where some of this tension is, right, as well. It's not just a conversation of, of, of reparations, but it's also people's understanding of what their their faith is. And, and in Christianity, that gets complicated. Yeah, and you know, this reminds me of a conversation that we had two weeks about, about slavery, where it was, we talked about the fact that you know, both the slavers and the anti-slavers were quoting scripture. Right. Exactly. Right. And and they felt that they were, you know, being good religious people in defending in defending their views. 